Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. We're looking at Mercurial to start out with today. Mercurial is a version control system, so it's a lot like Git, or I guess technically SVN, and then what was before that, CVS or something like that. So it's, uh, or RCS, or both, I don't know. So the um, Mercurial is a Python-based version control system, and I've heard, I had heard a lot about it, a lot of people sort of enjoyed it for whatever reason. No one ever really sort of told me why. I think that it's always tricky to explain to people why you like an application over another application because as i'm sure you've probably experienced this dear listener you tell someone that you like i don't know whatever you know um this the, the widget app because it types text and then they can name three other applications that also type text and so you th- and then you say, well, it's got really good keyboard shortcuts that just really just they agree with my fingers. It's, that's why I like it. They can name two other applications that you could configure to do the same thing as Widget App. And then you say, you know, and it just goes on and on, right? There's never there's never the feature that nothing else has. Everything else can all, especially in open source, something something else out there does the thing that you love and it does it better. And so it never makes any sense why you like the thing. And and that's how it is with Mercurial and with Git and with Fossil and, and everything else. Actually, not so much with Fossil. I feel like Fossil, um, I've done an episode on Fossil. You should go back and listen to it if you haven't heard. And with Fossil, I feel like you can actually name very specific things about it that you might like the way that it, the way, the way that it, it puts all your version control into a single file that you can just put onto a thumb drive and carry around with you. Uh, the way that it has an inbuilt web server. Uh, the way that I don't know it handles. You know, I mean, there are, there are certain certain things about it. I think the, the, I was going to say the way that it handles its configuration. There are certain things about Fossil, for instance, that do set it quite apart from other things. But I think even then, you've got other applications that do similar tasks. And I'm sure that if I really tried, I could prove that Git was better than Fossil, or that Fossil was better than Git. Same thing with Mercurial. It sits in that weird place of some other application does what it does, and therefore it's difficult to provide an exact reason you might prefer Mercurial over Git. I think the very common complaint against Git is that it's really, really big. There are lots of subcommands in Git, and oh, the subcommands have lots of options, and it, it's it's very complex. Mercurial and and Fossil and, and a bunch of other alternatives. They, they I can't say that those that these fix that problem. These it it get or rather version control is really really a complex topic, and I, it doesn't seem that there's an easy way around that reality. But what we can do is try Mercurial and see how it handles some common 
things that we're all used to now. Okay, so I've got a demo directory here, and I've got Mercurial installed because it's included with Slackware. And the first thing that I'll do is... Oh, I, I should actually say, the um, th this is a little bit non-intuitive, I would, I would argue. And that is that the Mercurial command in... If I look in var log packages, Mercurial... And this is this is Mercurial 4.3.1, so I have no idea how old that is. It's got to be ancient. I mean, it's it's Python 2.7 is the the version that it's using. So yeah, this is not at all the most recent version of Mercurial. The command it it, it installs one command, and it is user bin hg. Yes, hg is the command that you you use. And if you're wondering why, go look at a periodic table, find Mercury, and then it all comes together. All right, so first first command, and this will be familiar to you if you're used to get hg space init. And now I have a, a directory that is being managed by Mercurial. If you do an ls, nothing's changed as far as you can tell, but if you do an ls-a, you find that there is a hidden directory here called .hg which contains some files that you're not really supposed to mess with, as you can imagine, yourself. All right, so I'll create a, a, a text file here, echo hello world, and I'll pipe that into, I guess, hello.txt. And now if I do hg space status, it shows me that I have a question mark status for hello.txt. Hello um, now... The subcommand to, to to what I think of as staging a file, and I, I guess this is what what Mercurial essentially is doing. But the 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 subcommand for that is add remove all one all one string. So hg space a d d r e m o v e add remove. The reason it's called add remove is because it adds all new files and removes all missing files from the repository. Unless names are given, new files are ignored if they match any of the patterns in .hgignore. As with add, these changes take effect at the next commit. So I'm going to do hg add remove, or I guess I could just do add, but it seems to be pretty common among Mercurial tutorials to, to sort of advise you to do add remove. So now if I do, let's do an hg status, I'm going to look at that, and it's got now instead of a question mark, it's a for added hello.txt. And as you can possibly guess, if you're at all familiar with git, it's hg space commit. Uh, and then you can either leave it at that and hit return, and then a text editor pops up and you can include a commit message. Or you do the shortcut dash m, as in message, and then in quotes maybe you could say added a hello world file. Because this is the first time I've ever used Mercurial, it does not do the commit. It fails. And it says that there was no username supplied. Now I can do hgconfig-edit to set my username. And when I do that, it opens my default text editor, which in my case is Emacs, because I have editor and visual environments set in my environment variable set in my bash rc. Username, I guess I'll put Clatu. And what else does it want? Anything? Doesn't look like there's anything. I'm going to make... Oh, no, I'm not going to. 
Never mind. There's some color output and pagination options that I thought I might mess around with, but I don't think I'm going to now. Oh, and it says in this example that I'm supposed to also give my email. So, clat2 at mixedsignals.ml. Close. Okay. Now I go back up. Control-P, Control-P, HG commit dash M added a hello world file. This time I don't get an error, and it does succeed, and I can confirm that success with hg space log, which shows me that I'm currently in the change set 0 colon 649ce blah blah, tag, tip, user, that's me, uh, date, the time and date, summary added a hello world file. So that's, that's the basic workflow of, of Mercurial. That it's astonishingly similar to git in case you've in case you're not familiar with git that is if i had just said git instead of hg i don't think i don't think i would have had to make any adjustments except for the add remove command add remove would have just been been add but to be fair in hg it can also just be add it's just that i've seen a lot of people online using add remove so i figured it makes sense to follow suit so just to get some more data in here, I'm going to, I don't know, echo hello world. This is GNU world order calling. And I'll pipe that into the hello.txt file. I'll do an hg add. I'll do an hg... Oh, I don't have to do an hg add. It's already being tracked. hg commit modified the hello file, and of course to confirm that I've done what I've just said I've done, I'll do a log and it looks like that's correct. I'm going to do this one more time just so that there is data to play with. Hello world, this is... well, this one I'll just make completely different. All work and no play. I don't remember what the rest of that quote is. I think it makes Johnny... Is that with an H? Or no? Johnny, a very dull boy. I think that's what that is. Close quote. Redirect into hello.txt. I'm going to do an hg commit yet again. Uh, and I'll put replaced, replaced hello file text with quote from, I think that's from The Shining, hg log. Okay, so I've got three entries. I got a zero, I got a one, and I got a two in terms of revisions. The the tag moves to the latest commit, and the tag that it gets is tip. That's like more or less like the git head. I haven't exactly looked at the... I don't know the subtleties of the tip tag. I'm pretty darn familiar with the subtleties of head, because I'm, I'm pretty darn familiar with git. So I kind of have a, a fairly good understanding of, of head. I mean, I couldn't quote the source code that makes it do what it does, but I, I do have an understanding of what it does and what it represents and how to manipulate it and so on. Tip, I do not. I have not looked at the source code of Mercurial at all. I've just been using it uh, for a week to try to get used to it. And so I've got three three entries, and currently I'm sort of parked at the, at the, at the most recent commit that I've made, where I, I replaced all of the text with a frivolous movie quote. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to do 
HG update, and then I think I'll go to uh, let's let's go back to zero, I guess. Yeah, let's do that. So HG space update space zero, and that updates a file. So what that means is that if I do a cat of hello .txt, I see the the old the original text hello world. That's all that's there. Now remember, most recently I had just replaced it with a movie quote. Why is it back to the original? Well, that's because we did an HG update zero, and we've restored that commit to to or we've res we, we've made our current state. Uh, we restored our current state to that previous commit. I guess is how I would say that. I don't know. It's a tough thing to say. So anyway, now I'm going to modify this text yet again. So instead of saying hello world, I will say hello universe, and then I'm going to do an hg commit. Oh, forgot the message, that's alright. Fixed a bug in zeroth commit, and it created a new head. So if I do an hg log, now I've got four commits. I've got zero, I got one, I got two, and then three, which is where my tip is, the parent is uh, cited as 0649CE2849493, and the summary is that I fixed a bug in the zeroth commit. So this is a little bit analogous to in Git when you um, when you check out a previous commit and you you enter sort of a floating head state or a detached head state, and that's somewhere where you don't really want to stay in that state that that's you know head having your head attached uh, is better and i don't know what the analogy is for the tip but hg merge is the thing that you would do just as in git that's exactly what you would do in git you would merge so you're you're grafting your new branch back into the main trunk basically so if i do an hg merge right now in the current state that i'm in it presents to me a nice little diff tool and ooh, not so nice it's actually gvim diff i don't like that and it's it's asking me sort of which one i want to which version is the correct version so i'm going to select the first panel here i think and it says that there were three files to edit zero file updated one files merged zero removed and zero resolved so if i do a cat of hello.txt i have hello universe and if i do an hg log at this point i still have those four commits i'm on the third commit right now referencing the zeroth commit as its parent and then if i i don't know let's do an echo uh, foo into hello.txt things really getting destroyed and then do a hg commit dash m i'll just put destroyed hello txt once and for all hg log now i'm on the fifth commit and uh, it confirms that things have changed and it even interestingly cites the parent commits so it it, it shows you sort of the history of of the commit that has been changed so that you can kind of trace back at least this is what the the documentation tells me you can trace back sort of the the the, the lineage of of your different commits. I I've not delved deep enough into it to learn uh, about sort of I don't know rebasing and adjustments that you might be able to make to sort of structure your history in the way that you want. I I just haven't looked into that, and so I don't know exactly. I don't know the level of control that you have 
over how your commit history looks. I'm sure it's very robust, I, I, I would imagine. Um, I just don't know the process. Interestingly, there is a built-in web server into Mercurial, hgserve. So I'll launch that, and it tells me that I can now go to localhost colon 8000 in a browser for a nice little web view of my repository. And it is a nice little web view. It's very cool. It's got like a little graph. It shows me the tags. It shows me um, branches, not that I have any yet. Uh, it shows me my log. It shows the descriptions of each commit. You can click on a commit. You can see the diff. Really useful. I can really see people see using that as just an, a nice quick point of reference. Uh, I don't I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked into like sort of their advice on how you would run that in real life. Like, is that actually something you want to put out on the big worldwide internet that everyone can see? I'm thinking probably because it does look not very. Um, it doesn't look like it's geared towards sort of. Uh, you know, it's not like a, a Gitia or or Giti, whatever you say, Git T. Uh, or a GitLab kind of interface. It's really more of like a CGit, like here's the report. You're not going to be inputting information back into it, so it doesn't seem like it would have... It seems like it would be something pretty safe to, to run, in other words. Uh, the, the the rest of... Or already, you're probably noticing, if you're familiar with Git, that Mercurial is shockingly similar to the Git workflow. Like, all of the subcommands practically are the same, as I've already mentioned, and just kind of the general process seems to be the same. I've... Not come across any documentation to suggest otherwise, and I say it that way because Fossil has, in, if to my memory, there were there were things about Fossil that were remarkably different. Like you'd have to open your repository, for instance, and I wasn't ever used to that. That was something new. I, I wasn't used to opening a repository to to see all of my to to see the the files and the branches and things like that. So that was. That took some getting used to, whereas HG, you could probably, let's say, uninstall git, alias git to HG, and then just run, just trick yourself into running, you'd be running Mercurial thinking that you were running git. It would be very, very transparent in many ways. Not not exactly, I mean, if you were, you would be able to tell from output and stuff like that, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, it, it it's very, very similar. And and I've just demonstrated, obviously, just the kind of the basic workflow of making a file and adding it and committing it. But uh, the the other side of all this, of course, is interacting with repositories on the internet. And I'd go through that, except it's really, really the same as Git. Like, you want to clone a repository? HG space clone space path to the repository and then some local name for your repository copy. That's it. You want to pull changes in the repository? hg space pull space path to the repository. You want to push changes? hg space push space path to the repository. It's just, it, it is, it is remarkably, remarkably like Git. So I'm not going to continue going on because I do feel like at some point um, this is just going to sound like a Git uh, tutorial rather than and sort of an overview of HG, and and I think you're getting the idea. So HG is a lot like Git. Can you learn Git and then learn HG, or HG and then Git? I think so. I think the two are, are really pretty pretty compatible in terms of sort of learning, you know, learning the learning the process and learning the tool at the same time. <laughs> uh, you're kind of getting you know you're getting two tools. Two tools for one set of lessons, really, is what's happening. And that's kind of neat. I mean, I, I have to admit that that's, um, that's a refreshing way of 
handling an interface sometimes. I think the the weakness in that approach, obviously, is that if someone is looking for an alternative to Git because they don't enjoy Git, I don't see how Mercurial would solve that problem. I would think that if you didn't like the way Git worked, you also wouldn't like the way that Mercurial worked. Um, that's kind of the impression that I get. I don't know that that's correct, but I mean, because I like Git, so it's hard for me to exactly sort of put my place, put myself into a place where I don't like Git. But if I do, and and you know, Git Git annoys me as much as the next person. I mean, it, it just it happens. Git Git can be difficult because version control is difficult. So in those moments, if I were to say I'm going to switch away from this this whole this whole paradigm, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to find something else. I, I wouldn't go running to HG, I don't think, because it's just so similar. I'd, I'd probably be looking at, at Fossil and, and maybe something else that I haven't even looked at yet. So that's the, the, I guess, the disadvantage. The advantage, though, is that, like I say, if you learn one, you're essentially learning the other. And that's kind of neat, because if you join it, if, you, if you're working on a project that happens to use Mercurial, then now, now, now you're, there's no barrier to entry there's no no learning curve you already know the commands and you can start contributing which is huge i mean that's it's a huge advantage the other advantage to mercurial that i can detect is that it is based on python it's written in python and writing modules for hg is therefore as simple as writing modules in python which is pretty simple, or it can be simple, I should say. So here we go. Um, let's say that you want to do a quick little Mercurial plugin, and I mean, if you if you wanted to do this for Git, I don't even know what the process is. That doesn't mean that it's difficult. I it's just literally I don't know what the process is. Um, now I do know that with Git, and this is probably why I don't know. Um, with Git, I, you can do pretty easily some pretty neat hooks, some Git hooks. And those can be just shell scripts that you put into the git hook directory, and those are very, very useful. Those feel kind of like modules to me, although admittedly, they're not. You know, if, if, if I wanted to create, let's say, a system to handle binary objects without committing them to, to my repository, without checking them into my, my version control system, if I wanted to code something like that and have it hook into git i don't know where to start and in fact i have written such a thing and i i just i i don't know how to make it be a git subcommand. i don't know that i haven't looked into how to do it i just happen to not know it and and i was lazy so i just made it git dash portal and that's the command so it's it feels like it's git because i'm i'm stealing git's name git dash portal but it's not a git space portal space command or or option uh, argument it, it is a shell script that just happens to steal git's first you know the first part of the git command name with mercurial plugins you, you can th these integrate these integrate directly into mercurial so for instance and i'm stealing this right off of a website on a tutorial by a guy named moshe zadka and he's a really smart python programmer like really smart um, and so this is like a tin line little Python hello world application. So from Mercurial, import registrar. That's the module. Well, Mercurial is the module. 
and then import registrar, that's the function that's going to provide sort of registering as a, a plugin. From mercurial.i18in import underscore, that's the, lo uh, the locale stuff. So um, Moshe has command table, cmd table equals curly bracket to curly bracket, command equals registrar dot command parentheses command table close parentheses and then so that's that's loading command that's registering command into this into this uh, uh, into the yeah that's registering the command and so the command is at command parentheses quote say hello close quote comma square bracket parentheses quote w close quote comma quote whom close quote comma so that's um the option is going to be either dash w or dash dash whom and then quote quote parentheses i didn't bother or not parentheses comma i didn't bother looking what that is it's probably some boolean value or, or something that we don't require uh underscore and that that's of course registering this for translation as appropriate parentheses quote whom to greet, close quote, close parentheses, close parentheses, close square bracket, close parentheses, and then def to create a function, say underscore hello, parentheses ui comma repo comma star star or uh, asterisk asterisk opts, close parentheses colon. So a lot of this, I mean, this this admittedly, well, let me do the last line, ui dot write, parentheses quote hello, space quote comma opts bracket quote whom close quote close bracket comma and then a new line character in quotes and then a parentheses so and that's the whole extension but i mean obviously it's going to be a very simple extension so you can tell probably that this is more complex than your standard python application like this is not beautiful python code we have an at command syntax here we've got um what was it? Close parentheses, close parentheses, close square bracket, close parentheses. That looks, I mean, it's, it's practically Lisp. It's so many parentheses. Um, you've got things that you're referencing that you don't even know where they're coming from. UI, comma, repo, comma, asterisk, asterisk, opts. So it it is, I think, complex. So this isn't, you know, you're you're, you're hacking into someone else's code here, and and that does get a little bit complicated, I think. But... The cool thing about that is that you put this uh, hello underscore ext dot pi in your mercurial um, site packages folder, whether that's in like a virtual environment or just you're installing it, you know, to the, the host system. To be able to use that extension, you must enable it in your dot hg directory. Uh, there is you you can create an dot hg slash hgrc file and in that hgrc square bracket extensions close square bracket so you're basically sort of doing an ini configuration file hello underscore ext equals that's it and then in uh, mercurial you can then do things like hg say hello uh, say dash hello dash dash whom quote clatu close quote return and it echoes hello clatu back to me. Obviously that has nothing to do with Mercurial's function as a version control system. It's basically using HG as a very complex front end for a, a Python hello world application. But the point here is that you can essentially create a Python script. You're importing two functions, maybe even just one if you're lazy, from Mercurial, putting that into your Mercurial site packages library 
module thing that Python uses, and now you've got you've got custom functionality within Mercurial. And obviously, I I have not looked, and and obviously you could look at the uh, documentation for the Mercurial module to find out what 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 you have available from within Mercurial. And that's the exciting thing. I mean, for the 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 way that you in Git you you query like Git ref and things like that to sort of find out what commit you want to reference and 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 whether the commit has changed and and you know you've got a lot of sort of information that you can do by parsing the output of of some git ref commands and and git whatevers this is mercurial it's, it's in python the 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 you you don't you're not really parsing at that point you're you're like i mean you are but you're also querying and sort of using data that that exists within mercurial's data structure already and that is kind of cool that's kind of nice there's a there's a subtle difference sometimes especially if if you're not necessarily super used to the difference between sort of using i i guess like an actual data structure versus just a bunch of output that you have to parse with grep and said and awk maybe if you get fancy there's a subtle difference sometimes but it can be in a significant difference uh and and that's kind of that space that gets occupied by python rather than a shell scripting language and mercurial takes advantage of that that said there are a bunch of python modules to interact with git as well so it isn't quite as if though you don't you don't have any ability to interact with git outside of let's say a shell script in a git hook directory it's just it just happens to be built in in mercurial and kind of part of the system whereas git i don't think i'm looking it up real quick right now i don't think that git python is necessarily i don't think that's like sort of sponsored by or maintained by the git project i don't think hard to say for sure i i'm i'm pretty sure it's not someone will correct me if i'm wrong I'll bet. I don't see any indication that it is, though, uh, over a, with, from a cursory glance. But anyway, my point is there are there are lots of different ways to interact with version control systems. Mercurial is based on Python. Interacting with it through Python is very natural, very native, so it makes a lot of sense. And I can see a lot of people being attracted to Mercurial for that reason. Because Mercurial is so much like Git, I don't anticipate using it a whole lot myself. I, I may as well just keep using Git. I, I It is in my interest to continue to use the same tool so that I get better and better and better with that tool. If I start dividing my attention, I feel like I would be possibly cheating myself out of a little bit more expertise on Git. Not that I'm calling myself an expert on Git, I'm just saying the more I use it, the better at it at it I become. And so I, and and because it is so popular, that's just the sensible choice. Having expertise in Mercurial, for me, I don't see the advantage, so I probably won't probably I'm not I don't anticipate using Mercurial in real life. But I am definitely impressed with the tool. I think it's really really well designed, which is kind of a weird backhanded compliment, because I'm also saying I'm not gonna use it because it's so much like Git that there's no point. But I'm still saying I I do think it's really well designed. It's it feels very much like Git, and and if I had to use Mercurial because someone was using Mercurial, I feel very comfortable with it. Well, not very comfortable. I I would feel comfortable just dropping right into it, and and the couple of things that maybe were different or nuances that were 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 different, maybe I would you know I, I could find out about on an as-needed basis. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think you should try Mercurial. It's an interesting experience. Just try it for a week. Um, don't try it on anything too serious. That was my 
quandary. I didn't want to use it on something in real life and then have to learn how to migrate Mercurial to Git because I knew that I wouldn't actually retain it in Mercurial. So that's that's a trick. But uh, I just used it for just a bunch of plain text files that I was working on. And then at the end of the week, uh, or the, the end of my trial period, which was today, I moved um, those text files just to my normal standard Git repository. Uh, losing history doesn't really matter. It's just it's just a bunch of text, so it's not a big deal. Um, either way, you should try Mercurial. It's an interesting experience. It's it's pretty darn nice. And if you're into Python, try writing something cool for it. I think that could be an an interesting exercise as well. Okay, next up is a coffee break. Let's do it. <laughs> coffee and I've got email remember that's our new our new cadence our new workflow here is to have a coffee and read some listener email that is until I run out of listener email which could happen all right so this email is quite exciting it's about guile and readline this is from Ephraim and he says I've been a long listener to your podcast and wanted to give you some code config snippets GNU geeks ships with the following as the default .guile file. With it, I have colors and readline support. Guile-readline and guile-colorized are part of the default packages in GNU Geeks. He's got some code here that I'm going to have to paste into the show notes. It is guile code, so it's it'll look a lot like Lisp, because that's what it is, the dialect of Lisp, right? And it's it's great to read. It's really nice to read. Well, it's well commented, first of all, but it's also, I feel, relatively, um, what, lucid or, or clear or whatever? Um, like, activate-readline. Like, that's that's pretty clear. I like that. Consider installing the guile-readline package for convenient interactive line editing and input history. Um, and s- unless inside Emacs, do this, and yeah, so on. Um, also, readline's config file is .inputrc. I have the following in my .inputrc. Set show mode in prompt on. Set enable bracketed paste on. Set editing mode. He has vi. Um, surely, surely he means Emacs there. Uh, control L, clear screen. Set bell style visible. Also, when I find myself at a bash prompt where I don't have my .inputrc with me, set dash o vi changes the key bindings to vi style. Then escape will put me in command mode and I can use my familiar keyboard shortcuts. I did know about that and I forgot about that little trick, the set dash o vi versus set dash o emacs. Um, and that that goes back to what you Andre was talking about, about the 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 keyboard shortcuts happening also in bash as they do in emacs. That's the that's the sort of the preference set, and I keep forgetting the the set dash o options in in bash. I mean, I, I use set dash what is it, set dash e all the time in my shell scripts, which forces it to exit on errors. But the set dash o 
options, I, I very frequently forget about those. Okay, so let's move on to the next thing. This is an interesting one, really interesting, like way out of my normal um, sort of space. Uh, this is NASM, N-A-S-M, and I guess I should do uh, less on var log packages first. NASM. It says NASM is the NetWide Assembler, a free portable assembler for the Intel 80x86 microprocessor series, using primarily the traditional Intel instruction mnemonics and syntax. You can find more about that at nasm.us. This package ships with NASM and NDI-SASM, or NDIS-ASM, which I'm going to bet is a disassembler. That's what I'm going to bet. Okay, so... um. You can do a MAN, NASM, NetWide Assembler, Portable 80x86 Assembler. The NASM command assembles the file file name and directs output to the file out file if specified. If it's not specified, it derives the name from your your, your source code or your, your source file. All right, so I've never written a line of assembly code in my life. Luckily, there are some tutorials on this very topic, and so I'm going to give it a shot. So I'm going to do emacs of uh, hello.asm, and then I'm going to blindly paste a bunch of text into a text editor. So it starts out, and so first of all, there are three um, there are three sort of columns, if you will. It's similar to the way that COBOL had that weird... Was it COBOL? Yeah, it was COBOL. Um, it had that weird sort of... Uh, what was it? Seven bits in front of the in front of your text that you couldn't you couldn't use the seven bits unless you did like I don't know COBOL modern mode or something like that. So in this one, there are labels, instructions, and operands. The the first the first part is a directive, and that's a little bit confusing in a way because it doesn't have a label. So your first the, the first directive in this sample has no label. Now it says that labels are optional. So I feel like I should be able to insert a label, and I'm going to just insert what I think is an arbitrary label called my start colon, and then after that we'll put the word global and global is an instruction and the operand operand for global in this text file that i've blindly pasted is underscore start so next is um a, uh, so that was that's considered the directive and the next the next section is con or the next part of the application is considered a section and that starts for whatever reason as a section, and that's again not a label. That is an instru an instruction, apparently. So we're we're sort of we're creating a new we're doing a delineation here, and that is section. And the the section contains dot text text. We have, if you'll recall, we've seen this kind of stuff before when looking at assembly code. This is the this is stuff that we've we've looked at before. And now we're going to say uh, we're going to use a label called underscore start colon and the inst the, the instruction is mov and the operand is rax comma 1 and what does that do well apparently that's the system call for a write action that's w r i t e write action next line we're skipping the labels going straight into the instruction and we're doing mov again 
and the operand is rdi comma one. This is a um, th this sets the file handle to standard out, so that's where we're writing to. Next line, mov again, rsi uh, comma message. This is the address of the string to output. Next line, mov rdx comma thirteen. That's the number of bytes we're going to be using. And then the next line is syscall, which invokes the operating system to do the right, to perform the right action. MOV RAX comma 60, that's a system call for an for for uh, exit. XOR, ZOR, RDI comma RDI, that invokes the operating system to exit. So it sounds like that's if this can exit, then exit. If not, then do it exit this way instead. That's what it sounds like to me. I don't know for sure. And then the next line is syscall, which invokes the, um, the, oh, no, you know what? I got that wrong. I'm sorry. The Zor line, RDI, RDI, was exit code zero. That's what that was. And then syscall is to exit. So that sounds more like we're saying possibly exit on failure, emit a code zero on success, and then syscall to exit. That's kind of what it sounds like. And then... Yeah, that would make sense because the syscall does the, the does the um, does the write, and then we do the either the exit or the success, and then the exit again because it's like we're really exiting. Um, and then we're do doing a new section, and this one is called is called dot data. So this is where we're obviously entering the the data required by the stuff that we've just uh, written. Label message colon the global instructor the the rather the instruction is db, and the operand is uh, quote hello comma world close quote comma ten and that says um, it says note the new line at the end I'm assuming comma ten is the new line at the end that's what I'm guessing so I'm gonna save that and now I've got a file called hello dot ASM so now it's time to to assemble this assembly code and the way that I'm gonna do that is well I'm gonna do a man nasm first tells me that what I need to give it is a NASM and then dash F for the format, dash O for the out file. I'm going to skip the dash O, because it will default to some other name of the file, because I don't exactly know what I'm getting out. Oh, actually, it says right here, uh, appending a dot O or dot obj. Okay, so it's going to put, it's going to output, um, like an object file at dot O. Yeah, okay. So that's fine. So, and then I need the file name. So I'm going to, oh, and then I need to find out what the format is going to be, or I know what the format is going to be, but I need to know, well, I know what the output is going to be. I need to know what the format, what I need to tell it the format should be. Okay, so formats are things like elf64. That's the one that's relevant to me. So that's just dash F. So, okay. NASM dash F elf64. Like I said, I'm going to skip the dash O just because I don't want to, I don't particularly want to try to second guess anything that it knows better than me. So I'll let it figure out the file name right now. NASM dash F elf 64 space hello dot ASM success. And that produced a hello dot O file, just as it kind of said it would. Now, dot O files, if you go back and listen to the GCC, episode you would you'll you'll recall possibly that the way that we can sort of process a hello dot a dot o file is with ld which uh what is that like the gnu linker yeah um so 
ldhello.o produces by default a.out. So if I do a dot slash a.out, I get hello comma world. So I could go in to my little assembly code here, and instead of world, just to confirm that there's no shenanigans happening here, um, clat, oop, I don't have enough for, for clat2, so I'm going to just do uh, hello clat2 just with one A. That's wrong. I spell it with two A's, but that's fine. So now I'll do those commands again, nasm-f for the hello dot. O, and then ld hello.o, then a.out, and this time it should say hello clatu, and it does. So let's let's correct the spelling of clatu. Um, hello clatu. Well, now I've added I've added a letter to this. So now if I do the nasm f elf64 hello asm, and then do a linking of that, and then with ld hello.o, and then a dot, uh, dot slash a.out, it successfully prints hello clatu, but it leaves off that new line character, the comma 10. And so my prompt just runs right into into clatu. Can I can I update that? Could I say, well, instead of instead of providing 13 bytes for myself, let's uh, let's do 14 bytes. So instead of on line 14 here, mov rdx comma 13, change that to rdx comma 14 and see how we go. Compile, comp compile, and then link, and then execute. Hello, Clatu, and there's the new line. Well, we know everything we need to know for assembly now, and uh, I don't see what possibly more there is we could possibly learn. Um, there's actually a whole lot to learn, of course, and there's a really cool little tutorial that I've just stepped like through the f the first exercise on. Um, a fairly random website that I just happened to find, cs.lmu.edu slash tilde ray slash notes slash nasm tutorial. And it, it goes on for a, a while. It's really kind of interesting. Um, there is, I mean, you can, you, really, it's, it's very interesting. I highly recommend going through this. I don't know how much legitimately you will take away from going through this tutorial, I feel like while I was doing it, it felt like pieces were falling together, it falling into place. But after the fact, I, I did not feel at all like I had really, like I'd learned something that I would be able to then practice and, and continue down. Now, part of that, to be fair, is just my, my complete disinterest in this topic. Um, Assembly, it does seem kind of, you know, it, it seems like very cool because I mean that's that's the lowest you can go practically, right? I mean it's it's very raw stuff. It's it, it comes before everything else. It is what everything else ends up as at some point. You know, it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot to like in just how how low level this is, but that low level for for once <laughs> doesn't actually appeal to me because i mean a lot of the a lot of the examples on this site have to be done essentially twice um citing linux examples and mac os examples which i don't like the sound of that at all i already think most programming languages aren't aren't as sort of you know magically cross platform as i would like them to be now i understand that that luxury, the luxury of, you know, portable C code, I mean, that's, that's only possible because that's one, you know, that, that's a higher level language. Um, 
the portability of Java. I mean, that's super high-level stuff. There are lots of abstractions happening. Other, you know, very smart people are doing a lot of low-level hacking to make those kinds of things possible. But I've, I just know about myself. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not. I, I don't need to talk directly to the CPU instruction sets. I don't find that interesting, to be honest. At least not right now. Maybe someday. But yeah, right now that is not where my interests are. I, I would rather get further away from that than to go down that path. I find that I find that reality a little bit frustrating. And for people who really understand CPU structure and can and, and know about the instruction sets, I think that's fascinating. I think I, I could be more interested in this if I had a risk processor at my disposal right now, like an open risk or something like that, risk V, risk five, whatever it's called. Um, I, that, that, I could see myself getting interested in that just kind of on the principle of reduced instruction sets on an open source hardware platform that I could be interested in. This does not appeal to me. However, that being said, it is really neat to see sort of the process and, and the format and the syntax of how this is all, um, how this all sort of gets done. So I do recommend doing a tutorial if you have the time, if you have a lazy afternoon, want to just step through some random code examples. It just kind of gives you an, an idea of, you know, kind of the notation used when when talking about and talking to CPUs. It's just kind of neat. Really quick, I should talk about NDIS, or NDIS-ASM, which is the, as I said, the disassembler for, for um, assembly. So... Um, it says that it generates a disassembly listing of a binary file input and directs it to standard out. So in theory, I should be able to do ndisasm, hell, uh, no, a.out, and I get a lot of information from that. Just as promised, it is a disassembled, um, it's, it's, it, it is that binary disassembled in readable text. Um, looking at this, I would not identify the output as being related to what I had input earlier at all. Looks completely different. Couple couple little things you can find in there. Like there's a there's an MOV call right there. That's cool to see. But it call it, it, it the the op, operands are AX comma zero X three C. I don't remember typing anything like that in. Here's um some ads. I didn't do an ad, did I? No. Okay, never mind. Um that's really all. Just the oh, there's the DB that that contained all the the um, the text, the um, the data rather. Sorry, that was, that was specifically not the text. Um, yeah, so that's pretty pr pretty fascinating stuff and very very different. Let's let's take a look just for kicks. Let's do an NM on a dot out. Oh, that is interesting. This is a lot less a lot less familiar as well than I would have expected. So NM, if you'll recall, is the um, thing that lists symbols for object files. And so if I do an NM on hello dot o, which that's before linking it. Actually, I wonder if that's what I should be doing. NDS in in this in this ASM on hello dot Oh, I don't think now it looks basically the same. It looks actually the very exactly the same. Okay. So nm on hello.o gives me this looks familiar actually. Um, a bunch of zeros, d message, a bunch of zeros, t my start, a bunch of zeros, capital T underscore start. Can we reverse engineer what that's talking about? Well, yeah, pretty pretty much. So the uh, the uh, um, message, d message 
that's uh, data message. That was my the data section, and the label of the data section I provided was message. Um, the capital T underscore start was the directive. I don't know what a capital T would stand for, but that's what that was. That was the directive. And then the my start with a lowercase t was in section dot txt so uh, text rather text so i'm assuming that's a um, text sec section so in other words what i have here is data section called message text section called my start and then capital t section which i, I can only assume means directive uh, underscore start so the, those are actually familiar now interestingly if i do an nm on a dot out I get some other stuff. I get some capital D's, which I don't know what those are. So underscore, underscore, BSS, underscore, start, underscore, E data, underscore, end. So those are, I guess, maybe sort of implicit things that, that you know, get added in after all the compiling happens. Anyway, that's, that's NASM. It's, um, it's assembly. And if you want to write assembly, you can. You can write it, and then you can compile it into object code and then link it and run it as long as you're doing that you know on on the correct CPU architecture that you've written the assembly for it's very precise stuff very complex but really really fascinating so give it a go thanks for listening i'll talk to you next time Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Bet you don't know how many kinds of soup I've eaten. Come on, guess.